And if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And while you're turning there, uh, just a reminder, this is taking place as a modern-day Turkey. There's Galatia there on the north, that yellow region. That's where Paul had planted churches in Acts 13 and Acts 14. I encourage you to read sometime. It's incredible stories what happened to Paul. And he's writing to them because he says in chapter 1 that he is deeply astonished that they are deserting the one who called them by the grace of Christ. False teachers had come in and said, yes, 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 you got to believe in Jesus. That's true. But you also, to really be saved, have to be circumcised. Or yes, yes, you're saved by grace, but you also have to follow the law of Moses. And so Paul is concerned that by adding to the gospel, they're actually losing the gospel. They're taking away from the gospel. That is no gospel. That kind of gospel is not good news because it's works. It's something plus Jesus, and it doesn't save. So Paul's going to continue in chapter 2 now. He's going to give us some more information about his past because he is defending his gospel. He's defending the origins of his gospel. So please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. So it says, then after 14 years, so this is either 14 years after his conversion or 14 years after his last trip to Jerusalem, we're not sure. He says, I went up again to Jerusalem. So if you go back, go back one screen real quick. If you look at that map, there in the bottom right-hand corner is Jerusalem. So that is where he is going. So back in verse 1, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. So three guys going together. I went in response to a revelation, so God revealed this to him to go, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, so Jerusalem apostles like Peter and James and John, he's going to have a meeting with them. He says, I presented to them the gospel, the good news that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So we'll pause there for a second. So Paul is taking a trip, a road trip with two other guys to Jerusalem. And it's a very important trip because these false teachers had come into Galatia. And not only were they adding to the gospel, but they were, we think, making accusations against Paul. Like, well, Paul, you know, you made up this gospel. And he's like, no, I didn't in chapter one. I was, I was on my way to persecute Christians when God got a hold of me. There's no way I made this up. Or maybe they said, Paul, well, maybe you got this gospel from somebody else. And he's like, no, I didn't go to Jerusalem until like three years after my conversion. That was all in chapter one. And now in chapter two, he is responding to a different argument as some of these false teachers who came into Galatia are saying, yes, Paul may be teaching you the gospel, but it's not the full gospel. It doesn't match up with what the Jerusalem apostles, what the mother church is saying. So don't believe Paul because it's not in accordance with the Jerusalem apostles. So Paul's like, well, I got to go to Jerusalem now. And I want them to confirm that the gospel I'm preaching is the same one that they're preaching and teaching in Jerusalem. And there's a danger if they don't confirm it. I mean, church unity is really at stake. The gospel's at stake because then you'll be adding to it, which is really no gospel. But also church unity. If, if they go against Paul in some way, they could have one church in Galatia, a Gentile church, and they could have a Jewish Jerusalem church in, in Jerusalem. So you really could have two churches depending on how they decree on this. So I don't think Paul is concerned about his gospel message. That is crystal 
clear to him. I think he's concerned here in verse 2b here because he is afraid that if they decree differently, if he doesn't get the same uh, affirmation that he's hoping for, that this could really split the church, that the Galatians could fall away from Christ, that this could compromise everything he's worked for in his ministry. Are you with me? So it's a very important mission, very important trip. It goes on to say in verse 3, he says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek or a Gentile. And by the way, I know this whole talk of circumcision is kind of weird, but in the Old Testament, this was the sign that God gave Abraham, the sign that uh, they are showing that they are part of the people of God. So you can, you can understand why they're having some issues with this particular sign. So verse 4 says, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So these people came in and are wanting Titus to get circumcised. They're wanting them to say, you have to be circumcised to really be saved. And it says in verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And aren't you so glad they made this decree, by the way? <laughs> aren't you so glad that there is nothing required to be saved other than what Christ has done, faith and what Christ has done for us. We don't have to follow the Old Testament laws to be saved. We don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And by the way, they never had to follow those to technically be saved either. But they made it crystal clear that it is all the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's go on to verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, so these Jerusalem apostles, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my gospel message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as the apostle Peter had been to the Jews or the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, the apostle, those esteemed as pillars, so foundational and important in the, ch in the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So thank goodness on this trip, Paul can now go back to the Galatians and say, see the Jerusalem church they agree with me. They don't agree with you, false teachers. They agree with me that they are teaching and preaching the same gospel, which we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? You know, I was wrestling with this week, how does this really apply to us? Because I've just given you some information, but a sermon is not just information. We want application. We want transformation. So how does this apply? And the more I thought about this passage the more I couldn't help but think about issues of unity, church unity, or what I'm calling gospel unity. And all week I was wrestling with questions related to this text. What is it that causes us to be unified as a church? What should we unify around? And what should we divide over if necessary? In other words, what is worth fighting over as a church and what is not worth fighting over? And you know what the answer is to all, all those questions? It's the gospel. 
We unify around the good news of Jesus Christ. We even divide if possible. I mean, Paul said in verse four, these believers are false believers who had come in wanting Titus to be circumcised. We divide over it. We fight over it if necessary. And so it just goes to shows if we are fighting over something that is not gospel centered, not gospel related, then we are fighting over the wrong thing. In my remaining time today, I want to look at four signs. What are four signs of real gospel unity within our church? And there's probably more, but four, I think, from this passage that can help us see how are we doing as a church. So the first sign is this, sign number one, we affirm that true Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Would you read that with me out loud? We affirm that true Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And really, you could put the whole book of Galatians as to summarize this. But in verse 4, Paul says really quickly that this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So Paul is saying that true believers, real believers, are very simply in Christ Jesus. Their identity is in what Christ has done for them. Not what they do, not getting circumcised, not following the Old Testament law. It's in Christ and what he's done on the cross for them. And so if you apply this to us today, I want you to think about just for a second. See if you can fill in this blank. And maybe you've heard people say this sort of thing. Fill in the blank. A real Christian is, hmm, what is it? And here's what I want you to do just for a few seconds. Turn to your neighbor, and I want you to fill in that blank with some negative things that you've heard from other people. You probably have never said this, but other people have said this. A real Christian is blank. What are some answers you've heard? Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and see what you've heard people say over the years. Go. Balcony people, you're welcome to do this too. <laughs> so, I didn't forget you guys. <laughs> Give you a few more seconds. And the fact that you're murmuring means that you probably have some really interesting answers that I wish we had time to share them all. <laughs> I see you up there. But let me, tell you, uh, let me tell you some answers I've heard. I won't give you a chance to share them, but this would be a really interesting discussion question in a Sunday school class or a small group. Here's some answers I've heard over my short life. A real Christian is a part of this particular denomination. A real Christian must be baptized to really be saved. A real Christian must believe and speak in tongues. Or a real Christian must believe in predestination to really be saved. A real Christian must be a boilermaker or a Hoosier. <laughs> Greg, I heard you talking about Purdue there. so. <laughs> or a real Christian must be a starfire or a jet. Maybe we don't say that, but we sometimes think it. A real Christian must dress a certain way or abstain from this particular form of entertainment. And it's changed over the years what that is. A real Christian, and I've heard all these arguments, must send their kids to private school. That's what real Christians do. Or I've heard people say real Christians homeschool. Or I've also heard real Christians send their kids to public school. So which one is it? Nobody answered. <laughs> 
And then we're coming up on an election year next year, just to warn you. A real Christian must be a Republican. A real Christian must be a Democrat. Probably a Democrat laughed over there. (laughs) (laughs) And even though we laugh, I'm guessing we know at some level we've thought this or know people who do think this. And it's dangerous. As funny as it is, the things we bring to add to what God has done through Christ to save us, it's scary. If we really believe that all people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then we will believe, here's how one pastor says it, that an American Christian has far more in common with a gospel believer who lives as a nomad in Mongolia than they do with a non-believer who lives on their street, drives a similar car, and whose children go to the same school as them. And the reason this is so is because of Jesus Christ, we are all saved the same way and thus have great reason for gospel unity. So sign number one, true Christians, we don't view them through any other lens other than are they in Christ, saved by grace alone, or not. Here's another sign, sign number two, and read this with me out loud. We affirm that Christian leaders are not as important as the gospel itself. We affirm that Christian leaders are not as important as the gospel itself. So, here's how Paul talks about these leaders in Jerusalem. I don't think he's putting them down, but I think he's quoting them and talking about them in a way that the Galatians and the false teachers would have held them up on too high of a pedestal. Here's here's how he says it in verse 2. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, so these Jerusalem apostles. And then in verse six, as for those who were held in high esteem, these Jerusalem apostles, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism even to them. Verse nine, James, Cephas, and John. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, Cephas, who's Peter, and John, the beloved apostle, those esteemed as pillars. So I don't think Paul is putting them down, but I think he is challenging a view of Christian leadership that they had where they were elevating these guys too much and putting them on a pedestal on a platform too much. And my question for you today is, do we ever elevate Christian leaders today in our world too much? And by the way, you're nodding, the answer is absolutely. While I am thankful for many pastors that have a very national and even global influence, I follow and read and enjoy their ministry, I have seen us divide over, I follow this guy, or I follow this person, or I follow that person. Even at the local church level, Paul will write an entire letter, 1 Corinthians, challenging them not to divide around Christian leaders, but to unite around Christ and the gospel. So one of the signs of gospel unity in our church is that we do not unite or divide over leaders, unless the gospel is at stake, I guess you could say. But instead, we put the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Christ to save us as greater than any Christian leader that we're elevating. After all, none of our Christian leaders have died for us. Only Jesus has. Only Jesus has come from heaven to earth, took on flesh, and saved us, and is coming again. So this is the second sign of gospel unity within our church. And then sign number three, we appreciate different callings. So even though we believe in one gospel, We appreciate and we affirm different callings from God that people have. This is a sign of gospel unity. So let me read verses seven to nine 
Paul will talk about his calling versus the apostle Peter's calling. He says, on the contrary, they, those Jerusalem apostles, recognized that I, Paul, had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter, the apostle, had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So do you see what they're doing here in the early church? Even though they are affirming one gospel, you must not be circumcised to be saved. You're all saved by the grace of Christ. They're still affirming different callings. Paul's calling to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, and Peter's calling to take the gospel to the Jews. Now, it's not like Paul never went to the Jews. If you read the book of Acts, he often goes to the synagogues and the Jews first, and then the Gentiles, but his primary calling that God had called him to do was go to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews, even though they believed in one gospel. And in each situation, they would have had to adapt how they reached them, but had one gospel. I bring this up because as a pastor over the years, I've noticed that we believe in one gospel. We all have a similar calling in that we're called to make disciples and glorify God. But the way that works out in each and every one of our lives is often very different. I love it when somebody comes to me and says, Pastor Rick, I really feel like the Lord has put this on my heart to do this or that or this. And I say, that's wonderful. That's great. But the problem often runs in when such and such person, and I do this too, when I start to judge people through what God has called me to do, when I start to say, well, God's called me to do this, I'm really passionate for this, why is so-and-so over there not as passionate for it as I am? They must not be as spiritual as me. They must not be as godly or holy. They must not really be a Christian as much as me. Now, we may not say that, but I think we think it. I won't have you raise your hand if you've ever thought that. But I think that's a challenge for all of us. When God has called us to something, we're excited, but then we start evaluating and judging people to see if they are as excited for my calling as I am. And if they're not, I start to put them down in my heart. I start to judge them, not through the lens of the gospel, but really through the lens of works. I've added to the gospel in my evaluation of them. So I think this is one of the signs of gospel unity. If the gospel is central, we will affirm, we will appreciate different callings that different people have in different contexts, and we're okay with that. We're okay if our particular passion or ministry does not get all the, uh, the time up front because we are the body of Christ, and all of them matter as long as the gospel is central. Amen? This is a real sign of gospel unity in our church. And then the last sign, real quickly, sign number four, and I wrestled with this one, see what you think. But another sign of gospel unity is that we have a concern for the poor. Paul says in verse 10, all they asked, so all the Jerusalem apostles asked me was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And the reason I wrestled with this because there's something very specific going on here that the Christians in Jerusalem and that region were suffering maybe from a famine, but either way, they were suffering and needed economic resources and help. 
So Paul and Peter and James and John rightly wanted the Gentile and Galatian churches to help provide assistance to their Jerusalem brothers and sisters. And this would have an incredibly unifying effect on the church. The reason I wrestled with it was, well, is that only something specific to their situation? Or does it apply to us today too? And the more I thought about it, I thought, I think it does apply to us too. That this is a real sign of gospel unity, our concern in the name of Christ for the poor, not only in society, but especially within the church, with our brothers and sisters in Christ like they did. When we have that concern for one another and the poor, it is a real sign of gospel unity. And the reason I think we can say this confidently is because of Jesus, first of all, he was our example in this, how he went and preached good news to the poor, not just the financially poor, but the spiritually poor. He lived among the destitute and the broken and the outcast and ministered to all kinds of people. But then also, as you read the book of Acts in the early church in Acts 2 and then Acts 4, you see that one of the signs of their unity was they were sharing their, their goods with one another as a church family. They were selling their fields and giving them the money to the apostles to distribute to those in need. I mean, that was an incredible marker of unity for the watching world to know that Christ was at the center. So Paul will say later on in Galatians 6.10, he says, let us do good to all and especially those who belong to the household of God. So I think legitimately that another sign of gospel unity in our church is we have a concern for the poor. So let's look at all four of these. I want you to take a moment. First of all, how are you doing in these signs of promoting gospel unity? How's our church doing? And I would say we have great reason for hope and we always have room to work on all of these. You know, this can get a little bit complicated because uh, I don't have much time to go over this, but I encourage you today as some homework, if I can give you homework, to read Acts chapter 16 today, just the first five verses, Acts 16, because in those verses, Paul will have another of his mentees, Timothy. He will have Timothy circumcised in order for the ministry they're about to do among the Jews. And yet here in Galatia, he doesn't have Titus circumcised. He's like, no way. So why in one situation would he have Timothy circumcised for the sake of ministry, but in another situation here in Jerusalem, he doesn't have Titus circumcised. Was Paul being wishy-washy? No. I think he was showing that when the gospel's at stake, if there could be gospel confusion with what he does, he will not give in for a moment. Titus, you will not be circumcised. No way. But then when the gospel's not at stake in Acts 16, just when they want to remove offensive barriers for the sake of ministry, he will have <coughs> Timothy circumcised for the sake of ministry. All this goes to show that one issue in one setting could be a gospel issue, and another time that issue could not be. So in closing, we need a couple things. First of all, we need God's incredible wisdom as a church to know how to unite around the gospel and how to fight over the gospel. And then secondly, I think the way that we actually do this, we don't do this by me telling you, go be gospel unified, all right? You got this. Go do it. Just do it. No, it doesn't work that way. I think the way we do this is by what we've always been trying to do every Sunday now, is we try to focus on Jesus Christ. 
We're going to sing about turning your eyes upon Jesus in just a moment, but as you look at each of these signs and as we look at Jesus Christ, if we keep our eyes focused on Christ, we will view people in sign number one through the lens of Christ and what he's done, not through some other thing that we bring up some other standard. If we keep the focus on Christ in sign two, we will realize that these leaders that we elevate even as Americans in our celebrity culture None of those leaders died for us like Christ did. None of those leaders shed their blood for us. None of those leaders are coming back for us like Christ is and going to make everything right. And so come, Lord Jesus, come. If you look at sign number three, we appreciate different callings because if Jesus is central, we will appreciate that different people are called to different things, even though they're serving the same Lord and spreading the same gospel. And then sign number four. If you reach out to the poor in society or a church, it can be very tiring and draining, and many of you have experienced this. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you will see that scripture says that Jesus was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. Jesus, who was the wealthiest being in the universe, submitted to death on a cross so that we could gain so many spiritual riches in Christ. So as we keep the focus on Christ, it actually gives us energy and excitement and motivation to continue to reach out to those in need. So we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Father, I thank you for this passage. I know it seems very distant from things we wrestle with today, but it's also the same. Lord, we confess that we often bring up secondary issues that don't necessarily matter in the Christian life. Lord, we confess that we often view people not through the lens of the gospel, but through something else, and thus we are adding to the gospel. We are judging people on works, not Christ. So we confess that to you now. Lord, help us as individuals and as a church to be so focused on what you've done through Christ. Help that to be our primary identity. Lord, and show us areas by your spirit where we are falling short. And thank you, Lord, that you, your son, set the ultimate example and that through him we are forgiven and through him and by the power of the spirit, Lord, we can live in a way where we are gospel unified. We pray these things and all God's people said, amen.